Welcome to episode 112 of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Below, and I am very grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with me. Whether this is your first or your 112th episode, I hope you hear something that will make you smile, spark an insight, improve your business, and maybe even change your life. Over the past few days, I've been having fun diving into Stephen King's memoir slash writing guide called On Writing. I just finished the first section where he details the years leading up to his big breakthrough when he sold the paperback rights to his first novel, Carrie, for a whopping $400,000. The story of his life is interesting, and I am particularly enjoying it because I've been a fan since I read It back when I was in my early teens. In between anecdotes about jobs and getting into all manner of trouble, King has sprinkled in a few nuggets about the writing process that make me really excited for the rest of the book, where the focus is less on memoir and more on the writing guide. And one piece of advice that he has shared early on has covered the price of admission. It came from an editor at a small town paper that King was doing sports reporting for. And the editor told him after reading his first piece, Write with the door closed, rewrite with the door open. King goes on to share, your stuff starts out being just for you, in other words, and then it goes out. Once you know what the story is and get it right, as right as you can anyway, it belongs to anyone who wants to read it or criticize it. In just those few words, King shared something so liberating and so applicable to anything we create, whether it's a book, a website, a business, a piece of art, or even the creation of another human being. It starts out as our creation, close to our heart and almost inseparable from who we are. But there comes a time when it has to be released out into the wild so that it can be rewritten, expanded, and shaped into what it's ultimately meant to be. And we have little control over how that happens. It's no longer just our creation. It belongs to anyone who interacts with it. It changes because it's seen through their unique lens. And rather than being scary, as we creators can experience it because it comes with judgment and critique, there's an invitation to see that release as freedom. We know what we created, we did our best, and we had good intentions. And in order for that creation to fulfill its purpose in the world, it has to be for someone other than ourselves. And some people will love it, some will hate it, and some will be indifferent to it. We have to accept that any and all of the above will happen if we ever want our creations to make a difference. So remember that next time you're in the process of creating something. It belongs to you until you share it. Make the most of that time when it's yours and do your best. Then let its evolution continue by releasing it and being curious about what's possible when it starts to belong to other people. Okay, time to shift gears and move on to our interview. And uh, this is a completely different topic than what I just talked about, but I think you're going to enjoy it. I know you are. Um, This episode focuses on one particular business model called a platform model. As you'll hear, we interact with platform businesses every day. In fact, by the very act of listening to this podcast through iTunes or Stitcher or another podcast provider, you are engaging with a platform business. And here to tell us about this model and how it might be ideal for introverts looking for a scalable business plan is Dr. Jeffrey Parker, co-author of the book, 
Platform Revolution, How Networked Markets Are Transforming the Economy, and How to Make Them Work for You. Jeffrey Parker is a professor of management science at Tulane University and a research scientist at the MIT Initiative for the Digital Economy. Parker has contributed to industrial organization economics as a co-developer of the theory of two-sided markets. He studies distributed innovation, business platform strategy, and the integration of distributed and renewable energy resources. The National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, and numerous corporations have supported his research. Parker advises senior leaders and is a frequent speaker at academic conferences and industry events. He received his BS from Princeton and his MS and PhD from MIT. And remember, after the interview, um, that you can learn more about Jeffrey and his new book, Platform Revolution, as well as find links to his Introvert Island book selections and other resources mentioned in this podcast in the episode show notes at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. Hi, Jeffrey. Welcome to the Introvert Entrepreneur podcast. I'm really thrilled to be talking with you today. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for hosting me on your podcast today. What is making you smile? Let me tell you, it is a lovely day in New Orleans. It's a Mm. perfect temperature. The sun is shining and it's a perfect day to go sailing. And even though I have been stuck in my office all day, it makes me smile. Yes. Well, I noticed that the background of your photo on Amazon was a a marina. So I was guessing that you were a sailor. (laughs) And I was out yesterday. And so I'm still smiling because of it. Yes, excellent. Well, I have a little bit of envy because I'm a sailor myself. So and haven't gotten out yet. But um, so glad that you've had that opportunity. Well, I want to start out by giving our listeners a little bit of context um, about you and your where you might fall on the introvert extrovert spectrum. And in particular, how does that awareness perhaps influence how you work together with your co-authors? Because you had two other co-authors. Am I correct about that? You are. And You know, so it was a really interesting question that you asked, and over the last several years, I've given a bit of thought to it. So as a professor, of course, I interact with people and with crowds all the time, but I do reach a tipping point where I then have to retreat and kind of recharge, Mm -hmm. which suggests that I have limits to (laughs) to how much I can handle interaction, you know, where if I was a true extrovert, that would sort of feed me energy, whereas I find it can be the opposite. Yeah. And that does have an impact with the way that I work with people. I tend to help build the teams. You know, so when we decide to get something done, I'm often the person who assembles the different participants and then helps get the group moving together to achieve some objective and work to make sure that the group is successful. So I think that's the way that I tend to interact with the people that I work with. Yeah. Would you say that that was true in your co-authoring process? Uh, It has been true for many, many years on the different papers and projects that I've co-authored, yes. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that because it's always um, it's always good to hear about an introvert who is also team oriented. You know, it can wear us out, but often we are the ones that are the catalysts that bring the right people together. And it's nice to hear how that's worked for you. Well, I want to jump in. You know, I, as I said in the introduction, you and your co-authors just released a book recently, just a couple of like a week ago called Platform Revolution. And I want to jump in first by defining what you mean by a platform model, which for those who are listening, and I know this is a relatively new concept to me as well. It can be diverse companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, and many others. So, Jeff, could you describe to us what makes a company a platform business? Yes, absolutely. So, when we talk about a platform, at its core, we think of it as a set 
of shared resources. So for example, you might have technology that you use to produce or to consume services, um, as in YouTube's video platform. You use the YouTube system in order to both upload and to search and to download. And so you're using this technology stack that then others come and build or add content to or build on top of. So at its core, what a platform does is provide a set of infrastructure and also a set of contractual relationships. So you have default contracts, you have the ability to do financial flows, you have shared definitions. And that allows the users, who can be either producers or consumers, to much more easily find one another because of the matchmaking capabilities, but also to transact with one another using platform resources. And so with that relatively general definition, those examples that you used earlier then can fit into that concept. And so in the case of Apple, I, the one thing that differentiates them from the other ones that I listed is that they I think of them mostly as a product company. And you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, the majority of their profits are made off of selling the beautiful little shiny pieces of, uh, of metal and glass. Mm -hmm. But the reason that it's such a powerful business is not just the product itself, but all of the services and the applications that get delivered through the product. So Apple's an interesting example because some companies are pure product firms. Mm -hmm. um, so somebody who sells mm -hmm. you an analog watch, they're selling you an object, and it doesn't have a lot of connectivity. Other firms, such as uh, Airbnb or Uber, are almost pure platform companies where they don't actually own any of the assets and they're just playing a matchmaking function, mm -hmm. Apple fits somewhere in the middle where they have both a very successful product business that they're selling you, but also have a very successful platform business where they're matching external developers and, of course, the consumers and helping them transact with one another. So the Apple App Store is an example of that platform model within Apple. The App Store is exactly... Apple's platform that helps to match the developer side and the consumer side. Yes. Okay. What about iTunes? I'm just I'm just curious. Is iTunes another one that's that's like that? Well, so actually, I'm not really drawing much of a distinction between the iTunes and the App Store because ah. that's another way for content owners or creators to get access to consumers. Got it. Okay. And if you look at it, actually, Apple was very fortunate because in their history, they've been primarily a product company, and in many ways, they kind of lucked into becoming a platform, specifically through iTunes and the original iPod. So we just talked about Apple and how they're a product company primarily. Um, of course, they have this very powerful iTunes store and also the App Store that allows for external producers of both content and services and applications to get access to Apple's users through the Apple system. And that's the basic idea, is that what happens in platforms is you're starting to access value that's created outside of the core firm. And so then the firm starts to become as much a market as a firm that's trying to sell its own products and services. And so then it's taking 
potentially a share of some of that value that's created or transacted across its network. But the flip side is it has the ability to access a vastly larger kind of pool of resources than any one firm could ever hope to amass on its own. What might be an example, maybe particularly within Apple, of where you see that playing out? Well, if you think about the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of applications that are now available for the iPhone or for the iOS, Mm -hmm. only a handful of those could be supplied by Apple because no firm would have the research and development dollars necessary to fill out such a broad offering. But by making the system open enough to external parties to connect, they're able to supply uh, functionality that they probably didn't even envision. And yet there it all is because they opened the system up and made it easy for others to adopt the technology and then to sell through the system. Yeah. And what I find about the Apple example, and I don't want this to become the Apple conversation, but they're such a, they're, their company is so rich with all of these different examples. But one of the things that they initially at least had going on was it was a very closed system. And so outsiders were not necessarily welcome. And I think it was with the iPhone and the iPad and all of that, that that kind of opened up the space for other people. And that, and I would guess that's where it, it made that pivot to where the platform model was much more acceptable, I guess. Yeah, and in Apple's case, arguably in the first round, in the the 80s, they got it largely wrong Mm -hmm. because they discouraged developers from participating by charging them quite high prices for access to the Macintosh by charging, I think, on the order of about $10,000 for a system developer kit. And they also competed directly against those developers by supplying their own productivity applications. And the result was that there wasn't very large support for the system on the developer side. And as a result, the consumer side never grew much. So they just had single-digit market share. But as you say, with the iOS, it's a completely different story. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, when they launched the iPhone, if you remember, that system was closed. Mm Mm-hmm. It had mm-hmm. about 30 core applications, things like email, things like messaging, calendar, and, of course, the voice application that lets you make a phone call. And then over time, they opened it up, and they got tremendous support from the developer community to start to provide all kinds of things that weren't engineered and weren't developed inside of Apple. Yeah, we can't imagine having our iPhones or our iPads today without all of those different sources of input that make it what it is, because that's pretty incredible what we have now. And it, it seems like, and you've alluded to this a little bit as you've been talking, that there are certain aspects about this model. I particularly think of the reliance on the digital hub and the outsourcing of things and the scalability that's possible. It seems like there are certain things that would be ideal for an introvert entrepreneur. What insights do you have about that? And how can we tell if the business that we're planning or already have is a candidate for this model? So so you're absolutely right, and it's part of the design of a successful platform is that they encourage experimentation and innovation on top without having to seek permission. So we call this permissionless innovation, mm-hmm. and the idea is that you don't have to expose your ideas in order to benefit from them. You have a default contract, and as long as you adhere to the rules of the platform, you're free to build on top and do with it what you will. That's almost ideal for introverts because 
You don't have to go to some large meeting. You don't have to get into some sort of high-stress negotiation. All of the tools that you need to participate are there and anonymously available. All the technology that you need to connect is published and available, and it's there for you to build on top of. The most successful platforms open themselves to precisely that sort of innovation and encourage it. It sounds like the perfect model of autonomy that you have that level of independence that an introvert is often looking for when they're going into entrepreneurial ventures. I think it's a tremendous step forward mm -hmm. that makes people much freer to produce and to get access to new markets that they wouldn't have had access to before because they can transact through a platform, and again, anonymously if they choose to, or quite publicly and in person by attending both uh, developer events as well as uh, consumer events. Mm -hmm. It's sort of up to the entrepreneurs and the innovators to decide the level of interaction that they want to have. Yeah. Well, like, I think of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, who is a well-known introvert. And yes, of course, he is synonymous with Facebook, but Facebook is really, it's, I don't know how many users we're at at this point, at least I think 1.5 billion maybe rings a bell. That's the number I've been hearing. Yep. Okay. So, you know, Facebook is really in actuality, 1.5 billion people, more so than it is Mark Zuckerberg, which is a great place for an introvert to be. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, it's, and it's fascinating how, how that's grown. It is, absolutely. Well, well, in, in that vein of thought, um, to what degree are we becoming a platform economy? Because it seems like, you know, as the more I dug into a little bit about what you were saying, that more and more companies that we're dealing with every day are this platform. And so... To what degree are we that kind of economy, and where do you see future growth happening? So, great question, and I would say we're still in early days. Mm -hmm. um, as much as we hear about firms like Airbnb and Uber, there are so many sectors of the economy that are likely to have an impact from what we call this revolution. And so I think it helps to kind of think about what are some of the factors that help determine whether an industry is likely to become more of a platform industry or whether it's likely to stay a more traditional kind of product and service oriented industry? And some of them are, are the degrees of information intensity. So one of the reasons that the news and media industries were disrupted so early and shifted so early is that the basic content of the industry is easily distributed electronically mm -hmm. at very low cost. Mm -hmm. And so there's an area where platforms can come in and then serve as an intermediary between producers and consumers and reduce the entire cost structure of the industry. Um, another one is, are there expensive gatekeepers who can be routed around? So, for example, and again, sticking with the news and the media example, You've got editorial staffs who are dedicated toward both sourcing content and also um, assessing and maintaining its quality. And what happens in platforms is you can push some of that acquisition out to the user base itself. Also, you can push out the quality control and the curation onto the user base. And now all of a sudden, some of that gatekeeping function that was done expensively becomes a crowd function and the cost structure starts to go down dramatically. And again, that's very disruptive to a traditional industry. So those are a couple of things where you would predict more disruption 
In my own industry, it's a terrific example. I'm a, in higher education. We hear every single day about how incredibly high the costs are. And as a result, there's an entire section of the Silicon Valley startup industries that are working hard to figure out how to crack the nut of entering the higher education market and going into direct competition with the existing university system. So, you know, we should expect to see tremendous kind of innovation and competition in that space over time. Uh, some of the things, on the other hand, that would tend to act against disruption are areas where you would have high regulation or high failure costs. So, for example, in the medical industry, mm -hmm. nobody wants to have a surgeon who hasn't been sort of appropriately certified and might have their, their board certifications and would be subject to some sort of regulatory oversight. And so where you have lots of regulation, that's also true in the energy industry, then this shift toward platform is going to be much slower. Mm, yeah. And another area where you're less likely to see disruption would be in things like the upstream oil and gas industry, where, for mm. example, I live in Louisiana mm. and off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico, we have multi-billion dollar oil drilling platforms, which is a different term. You know, <laughs> different, term. different platform. But the point is we have this very expensive infrastructure. Yeah. And that's not an area that's easily disrupted by somebody adding information technology and then you know finding producers and finding consumers. Those are much longer term, very capital intensive projects. And so you're going to see more traditional engineering firms participating in those markets in much the same way as they always have. Sure. Well, before we started in with the formal interview, you had mentioned, uh, we were talking a little bit about the, the rapid growth that can happen with this kind of model. Where do you see perhaps dangers or challenges when somebody's entering into a platform model for their business? Um, that growth is driven by uh, network effects. And network effects are where... Mm -hmm joining a system, the value that you get from affiliating with one platform versus another isn't just the value that you get from the objects, but it's also the value that you get from the other users of the system. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, if you think about telephones, you know, one telephone is useless, two, you can do a point-to-point -point conversation, but once you've got global distribution, it's a very valuable system because you can communicate with anyone anywhere in the world. Well, that's a classic network effect that says the more users, then the more value gets generated per use. And so that has a very strong feedback loop that allows platforms with strong network effects to grow quickly. However, mm -hmm. once that starts cutting against you, you can shrink just as quickly. And so if you go back, you mentioned Facebook earlier, um, mm -hmm. Go back to one of the original dominant networks or platforms, and it was MySpace. And they had grown very quickly. They had a large user base. However, they had a number of things that worked against them. Mm -hmm. One was that they had a technology that didn't scale. So that meant that the more users they got, the worse the experience was. So their infrastructure mm -hmm. wasn't up to the challenge. Yeah. But they also had some other problems, which is they had governance mechanisms that were not effective at screening out bad behavior. And so, for example, you had quite a bit of pornography on the system. 
and you had garish advertisements. And ultimately, that ended up turning users off. And then you got negative network effects kicking in and a rapid feedback loop. So you got just as, as quick a collapse as you had the earlier rise. And so I think what we can expect to see is kind of more change in the economy as these things can grow quickly, but can also die quickly. So there's always going to be a lot of churn in the marketplace. Yep. I, I think we're, we're entering a period where firms get big more quickly, but they also disappear more yeah. quickly. I think of those red giants or the stars that collapse, you know, they get so huge and then they just implode on themselves. Um, so it's always good to be keeping an eye out. I think if, if someone is listening and thinking, you know, this might be something that they would pursue. Um, what do you think is the most important question that an entrepreneur should ask themselves if they're considering doing something that would be in a platform model? Well, there are a couple of questions. One is, are you going to be the platform? That's often the province of larger and better capitalized organizations who can build out the technology to support a rapidly growing platform. Mm -hmm. But that being said, in novel spaces, um, there's still tremendous opportunity. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the first question is, am I a producer or a participant on someone else's platform or am I the platform? And that's a critical question. And then the next question is, when you're going to build out a platform, is what is the core transaction or the core interaction between users that you're trying to facilitate? And then every design decision that you make as you're building out the platform is wrapped around making that core transaction as valuable as possible as easy to execute as possible, mm -hmm. and so that you can get as much participation as possible. Because it's all about wrapping the design and the governance all around the core transaction. Yeah, it, it seems like um, user experience would be paramount. Absolutely, user experience is a part of that. And what is it that's novel, mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in the economy, or that's very expensive, that you can deliver in this alternate kind of way that would be disruptive. So, you know, you mentioned Uber earlier. Well, Uber had a market that's heavily regulated and not subject to a very good quality control in the taxi industry. Mm -hmm. And so you had a, a user base that was ready and willing to try something new, you know, where prices are relatively high and uh, customer satisfaction is pretty low. And so they were able to enter markets all over first the U.S. and then all over the world uh, at a lower price and arguably at a higher quality. That was incredibly disruptive. Yeah. Well, thank you for elaborating more on the platform model. I do think that it's something that is going to be valuable for any introvert, again, you know, that's looking for that scalability. I think of uh, sustainability as being one of our biggest challenges sometimes. And it seems like this model holds a lot of potential for us to be able to bring other people into the mix. But like you said, there's a certain amount of independence, autonomy, and I love that um, permissionless innovation that makes it conducive to being successful. So I appreciate you sharing this with our audience. I want to wrap up with a question that I ask all of my guests. And you might need this after the launch activities that I'm sure you're participating in. Uh, if you were granted a three-week vacation on Introvert Island and you could only take three books with you, what would you take with you and why? 
Okay, so I had to think about this one. Um, so I was glad to have a little bit of lead time on it. So the first book that I would bring is The Science of Interstellar. And the reason I would bring that book is that my children gave that to me as a Christmas present. And I haven't had a chance to open the cover. So I need to honor that. Yeah. The second book that I would bring is a biography of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, by Chernow. And the reason is that my daughter is obsessed with Hamilton, the Broadway production. <laughs> and then finally, and it links back to what makes me smile today, right. I would have to bring a copy of Celestial Navigation <laughs> um, to prep for my escape from Introvert <laughs> Island with my three weeks of time. Sounds perfect. And you, you can sail there and sail away. You know, that sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, what's the best way for people to connect with you and learn more about Platform Revolution? Well, we would love to hear from people. I'm on Twitter at G2Parker. We've got a, a book website up that's platformrevolution.com, and we try to put current events on there. And honestly, I'm pretty easy to find on the web, and just plain old email works. And I try to interact with as many people as I possibly can, and we would just love to hear what you have to say, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you, and I wish you and your co-authors every success with Platform Revolution. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Beth. With rapidly evolving technologies, there's going to be opportunities galore to adopt new models and expand our businesses in ways we'd never dreamed possible even 10 or 15 years ago. If the platform model that Jeffrey and I talked about sounds right for you, you'll be in good hands if you keep your learning going by picking up a copy of Platform Revolution. I've included a link to the book in the episode show notes on my website, theintrovertentrepreneur.com. Let's close out our conversation with another quote from Stephen King's book on writing. It seems to apply whether you're talking about writing or launching a business, really, before you do anything new. He says, the scariest moment is always just before you start. This week, reflect on at least one thing you've wanted to do, but the starting of it has tripped you up. Acknowledge that the scariest moment is always just before you start and take comfort in that very human response to change and uncertainty. Then trust that once you do start, the hardest part is over and you can get on with doing what you want to do. A very special thank you to my podcast producer, Paul Messing, and my assistant, Naja, for the episode show notes and to you for spending this time with me. This is Beth Bilo of The Introvert Entrepreneur, and until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. 